Hello, dear listeners. Welcome to another episode of Reckless A Talk, our TTRPG interview show where we sit down with some of our favorite writers, players, GMs, and streamers to get to know a little bit more about what makes them who they are. I am, as always, your host, GM Nathan, and I am very excited to present to you all the jokingly, question mark, self-titled greatest GM in actual plays, Eric Silver of Join the Party and Multitude Productions and a slew of other shows. Eric is a full-time producer, game master, designer, and content creator who has been making podcast goodness for several years now and has tons of great insights to offer. In this fun and freewheeling chat, we cover a lot of big stuff. Institutions versus artists, not waiting for people to make your thing, cheating out to the audience, being a Dreamcast kid, community action, and making the game the backbone of what you're doing, among like a hundred other things. This interview was so much fun and has much to offer new and old creators alike. Mostly, it's just filled to the brim with passion that is absolutely infectious. Please be sure to check the show description to hear more about Eric's variety of shows and games and links to Mango Wikis, and enjoy the episode. See you next time. Eric, hello. Hello. You put podcast upon, upon you've written the word podcast on my on my forehead, yep. and I've come fully to life to yep. become your podcast guest. I was just <laughs> a figure made out of mu- river mud and dice you bought for fifty dollars on Etsy. Yep. And now and now I'm fully here. Hello. You are the opposite of those uh, those Doctor Who like weeping angels, uh, where you only move if you are being perceived making content. Yes, for sure. I am a canonical golem because I'm here to defend the honor of uh, medium sized tabletop RPG shows. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> there was one Jewish writer on the show who managed to actually get this in. Uh, so I'm so happy to have sprung to life here for you. What more noble cause is there than medium-sized to smaller-sized <laughs> podcasters, especially of actual play content? Uh, well, super excited to have you. Thank you for being here. Thank you. I'm so happy to be here. Nothing makes me happier than having conversations like this, especially because like, at this point, tabletop rpgs the actual play genre is an actual artistic medium yeah there's five thousand million movie podcasts i want to go into it like blank check does on charlie chaplin (laughs) i want i need to talk about the actual plays like that and analyze it that's what we're here for baby like that's the that's the juice that's that's the whole thing but but before we subject uh, the listening audience to they are to... subscribed to this podcast. It's not subject. We're pouring the we're pouring the good treat. It's like we're throwing treats. That's true. To to pee. instead of like the, it's not crunchy food. It's not even wet food. It's like wet food adorned with like bacon bit treats. They know they want it. Well, before before our Praxis. beautiful podcast. <laughs> Before our beautiful podcast listeners gobble up all of the delicious content that we are about to serve them, let's let's set the stage here. Hey, Eric, who are you? 
who, why, why should people be interested in all of the, the delicious actual play artistic mediums, thoughts, opinions, and experiences that you may or may not have? Praxis, pedagogy, semiotics. All right. See, I know plenty of those words. Oh, you were a teacher. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yes, I was a high school English <laughs> teacher. So I, uh, I have a degree that says praxis somewhere <laughs> in my dad's attic. <laughs> it's framed. So you know it's real. It just says praxis. Yeah. Um, hello, I'm Eric Silver. I'm the dungeon master slash game master of Join the Party, actual play podcast that we've been doing for five plus years. We started the show in 2018, and I actually I got into tabletop RPGs with the boom of fifth edition. So I'm sure we're going to end up talking about this, but I'm, I am truly one of those people who, when fifth edition came out, the wave happened even before the actual play wave, like yeah. the beginnings of it, the tide was receding, getting ready to slam us all <laughs> with the tsunami. And I was just in the, I was just in the water waiting there because I was waiting for it. Uh, I'm also the head of creative at Multitude, which is a podcast collective studio and ad sales provider. And I also uh, produce three other shows. Uh, <laughs> yep. um, one is a sports show for Defector, which is a wonderful uh, like worker owned collective that spun off of Deadspin. I get to I produce their sports show and also two shows uh, on Multitude. Tell me about it, which is a game show run by a billionaire, uh, which is really fun. It's like <laughs> podcasting Taskmaster. It's really fun. And Games and Feelings, which is a advice show all about games that I do with Jasper Cartwright of Three Black Halflings. So uh, I'm out here making games podcasts all the time. <laughs> Doing the living that podcast life, as as we like to say in the business. Yeah, absolutely. My parents have no idea what I do. Yeah. <laughs> not, not even a little bit. Well, and you do it professionally, uh, and I do it as a hobby. And also, my parents don't have anything, have any clue about what I do. So, really, we're the same in that our parents are totally clueless as to wait, you're doing what? What is yeah. this? Okay, well, you're happy. Great. Sure. My mom lives in Nashville, and I took her to a a live show of the Adventure Zone probably in 2019, and it was the one. It's like a rather famous live show, and my mom extremely did not know what was going on. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm just like, okay, so this is all right. So they're brothers and their dad, right? They're mean to each other and they don't know how to play Dungeons and Dragons. But <laughs> everyone, we all love it so much. Um, this was me in 2019, so that was also like the whole thing was just was a wild, was a really wild. And I, in kind of preparation for this episode, uh, you know, was was looking a little bit certainly into past things you've done, uh, your shows, all that good stuff. And and we always start up top talking a little bit about, as you said, how how you kind of got introduced to tabletop role-playing games and nerdery in general. Yeah. Uh, but your, I, I, I was very interested, particularly in your story, because A, you've been doing it since 2018, which is much longer than a lot of the cohorts that I have. Oh. But also, you just kind of, like you said, you were, were right on the wave, right as... as 5e and actual plays and stuff were kind of starting to jump in was also when you started playing tabletop role-playing games. So what's the Eric uh, backstory in terms of of nerdery and tabletop and how all of these things converged into the podcaster that you are today? For sure. Uh, let's put a sepia tone filter mm -hmm. over this so we demonstrate it's the path. <laughs> yeah, I mean, in terms of nerdery, uh, which is such a, which is a very funny sentence that's going to encapsulate so many things that I did. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I mean, I was always into video games. I was into video games a lot. 
I think that this was set on my path that my first console was a Dreamcast, <laughs> and I didn't know what cursed bond I would have. Yeah, <laughs> like who I was one of six people that owned a Dreamcast. But there's a type of person who owns a Dreamcast. You yeah, know, like that's exactly. a that's an archetype of a young nerd. Yeah, who's like I was a Dreamcast kid, and that that tells you something. I'm not sure what, but something about that person. Sonic Adventure Two, Power Stone, <laughs> this one game that was like swirly match. That was it was like the. the, the it was like Tetris, but the swirls of the Dreamcast were Tetris pieces. It was really, it was really wild. But yeah, I was super into video games. I had a, I had a Dreamcast and a GameCube. I still have the same GameCube that I got on open <laughs> awesome. my grandparents in Erie, Pennsylvania. Got it for uh, my brother and I for Hanukkah, the Christmas season that year. Um, and it was a black one because uh, the purple one was for girls, obviously. Obviously. <laughs> obviously. I still kick myself. I wish I had the orange or the purple one. I just yeah. like, I love you so much, GameCube, but you're not the color I wish that you yeah. were because I yep. was an idiot when I was like 11. Yep. Through there, I think I ended up adding on more and more nerdy activities. Yep. Totally. <laughs> I was reading perpetually. I was one of those kids who like read so much that no one believed me that I was actually reading it. Where yeah. like teachers need to be like, so give me a summary of the book. And I'm like, okay. I just <laughs> I, I just didn't want to talk to anyone else. I wanted to read instead. Um and then from there I was in I did high school theater. And I, I from there when I went to college at NYU I was doing uh, slam poetry. I was really into slam poetry. I started the NYU slam poetry team. And we really? won college championships three times when I was there. <laughs> we were really we were really good at it. And also just in performance and everything. I also loved board games a lot. That was when like the big board game yes. craze was starting in the early 2010s. And it's the golden age or the, rev the renaissance has continued from there. One of the first board game ca cafes I ever remember opened up. It was called The Uncommons, which was like right below NYU, uh, where I went to school. And it was weird. Like, I knew that they existed, but it wasn't like a thing yet. So I'm like, so I can just pay you $10. Yeah. And I can play all these games. That's cool. Yeah. I'm going to hang out here a lot. <laughs> Sold. And of course, that ended up with me playing like way too much Seven Wonders. No one wanted to play it with me. I got really into <laughs> Sentinels of the Multiverse. Do you oh, know that one? I was literally playing it yesterday. I have the Steam. I have the Steam version of it uh, that I just casually throw on all the time. Absolutely. Yes. Oh my god, I love Sentinels of the Multiverse. That was like my game, and I used to play it by myself. For those of you who don't know, Sentinels of the Multiverse is like a cooperative game. It's like Magic: The Gathering, but everyone has a fixed deck that corresponds to a superhero that never existed. And then you use those decks and you play against a villain deck and like an environment deck. So it's a cooperative game, but you have to play at least three decks. Like you have to have three superheroes competing in this thing. I would play all three superheroes plus controlling the villain yep. and the environment. Deck. Been there, done that. Yep. Oh, good. 100%. I thought I was the only one. Good. No. This is, this is good. No, no. Do pick it up on steam though. It's very nice. It makes it much easier to run it by yourself. And then, yeah, I think that uh, Dungeons and Dragons crested along when I was looking for something to do. Uh, I mean, I saw the com I saw the community episode, and I think that's when Dan Harmon himself was getting pretty big, and like mm -hmm. Harmon Quest was existing, and then. Uh, the Adventure Zone obviously broke through, and I started listening to that, and I'm like, oh, this is really interesting, and I wish that uh, I could make something like this. I was also trying to break into podcasting at the time. I was a high school English teacher, uh, which you could tell by my big framed photo of Praxis that I have on, I mean, my, in my dad's <laughs> house. Mm -hmm. 
I did that for a year all the way in like South Brooklyn and I loved teaching and I loved being able to create something and give it to my students like that or have them interact with it. I was also a camp counselor for a very long time. Uh, So I was like, I loved making things like activities and then having people participate in them. Um, But then uh, teaching, I, I really loved and I was a high school English teacher, but then the school got hit with a grade fixing scandal oh which was like reported on local new york city news <laughs> um basically like teachers were just passing kids who had went to summer school just by giving them a packet and then telling them to go so to raise the graduation rates of oh, high school right. yeah and i was like oh i'm just disinfra- i'm disaffected from from this whole thing also like i didn't realize how unions worked and i got a really good sense of how unions work <laughs> from, from from that being like oh that's i'm like are you all being paranoid right now and they're like no it's not paranoia if you're prepared and i'm like okay but then i finally understood what was all happening and slowly i found myself into uh, making shows i i started a job at like a big media company after a few years and i met people would eventually uh, be my co-conspirators on Join the Party. And we started putting this together in like the nascent form of the actual play genre. We still found ways. We're like, I wonder how we can make the show our own and make it as best as we can. And then we've been kind of on that journey for five, six years now. What part about actual play? Uh, and I'll, I'll start there as opposed to kind of tabletop, though I guess it all is all under the same umbrella. You're looking for a, a show, right? You're looking for something to do, looking for a podcast, looking to have that experience of creating creating something for others to kind of interact with and, and to enjoy. So mm-hmm. what about tabletop stuff caught your attention and kind of grabbed onto you and said, this is what you're going to be doing for five years. <laughs> this is the main thing you're going to think about yeah. all the time. Yeah. I ended up did playing a few times before I ended up being on the microphone. I played like as a player once like a character was Erie Goldbottle, who is a ranger halfling because I was really excited about being able to ride on a dog on a Mastiff, yep. which you were able to do as a small character. Tales oldest time. I still remember. That's the one main thing. And of course, we were level one. And I we, I played one session. And I never got the chance to actually do it, which I'm so <laughs> annoyed about. The thing that I end up thinking about the most, which I think is, is something that I've been on a journey with since I was 23. I think that moment when the school got hit with the grade fixing scandal is I realized that all art and all institutions and all companies, as this extends into business, are made by people. And it's not some monolith that has always existed that is that has no cracks in it, that is just, it is what it is. I think that's why yeah. people make institutions in the first place. Because humans are fallible, but things cannot be questioned, right? But you realize that a, uh, you know, as uh, Alucard might say, a, a man is nothing but a miserable <laughs> pile of secrets. A company <laughs> is nothing but a miserable pile of people <laughs> who, are, who work on the thing. <laughs> uh, and then hide, and then, like, use that as a shield. I thought that I was just a teacher in a school. But the school was being propped up. As something that like, you know, the principal wanted to look good and like turn around a quote unquote failing school because it was in South Brooklyn and, you know, public school funding was still terrible even like 12 years ago. The entire time I was like, I wonder if we can make something that's helpful for other. I wonder if we by coming together as a show, as a piece of art, we can do something and give something to someone else and we can put our values forward. The things that we want to happen, we can make them happen. All we have to do is do it instead of using like the institution to stop us here. I think the big thing that I've been thinking about, especially in how Wizard of the Coast and Hasbro has been treating the game of Dungeons and Dragons, 
the game has nothing to do with the people who own the IP. And I, I need I need yeah. people to understand that. It's not about the people who work on it, like the the writers and the designers who work on these books that eventually get published. They need jobs, and there are so few jobs that exist in tabletop RPGs. But at the same time, is like the institution begs to be inextricable from the game. And I think that's where we get into problems, where we allow an institution that has their own power, that, it, that has its own things, <laughs> to get in the way and like do the things they want for money control, IP, whatever that means. It's interesting that you kind of started talking about art and ownership of art and who owns the thing and who owns the stories and who owns that sort of thing. When you were putting this together, uh, not to jump too far ahead, did you kind of already view it as this is an artistic medium? Yeah, 100%. When when we had our first recordings of Join the Party, we made a whiteboard that had rules we couldn't do. We didn't want to make references. We didn't want to. The main thing, just for us to remember what was there. Like, yeah, we wrote down all the character names so that we would remember. But we're like, let's try to keep all of our jokes in world. There's no reason for you to bring in a pop culture reference that only a certain number of people are going to understand. Especially because this was 2017 when it was still like all Chris Hardwick, all Will Wheaton all the time. Where it's like, if you did not consume the same small group of 80s movies then you're an idiot and you're not going to get anything. You're not going to understand everything I'm talking about. And this isn't for you. You know, I don't really care about Star Wars. I don't really care about Star Trek. And even Chris Hardwick would like just super dunk on, would just like super dunk on me if he had the chance, you know? At the same time, it's like, I don't understand any of your Christian references. I don't understand so much of fantasy stories right now. And it's another way to leave as many people outside in the cold as possible. Yeah. In order to get a job in so many places, you extremely need to remind the hiring manager or the boss of their son or their younger nephew or cousin. And I think that there's so many people who can stand arm in arm and be like, we're not going to take this bullshit anymore from the people in power, from this very specific group of people who exist for the content that's made for them, that we should all be standing side by side instead of trying to step on each other like a bucket of crabs to try to get that one sliver uh, of power offered for them. Obviously, I can't speak on be- on behalf of anyone else because I'm a cis, straight, white man. But I obviously, I, I deal with this in terms of Jewish stuff. But we're all in this together. I is pretty much what I'm saying is like, it's a trick that the people in power have put on everyone that we're fighting for the one, the, everyone who's not inc- incredibly on the inside is fighting for one sliver of acceptance. And then we can all, but we should all just be banking our own shit. And I, I think about that more than ever we're thinking about art and we're thinking about how we make this stuff in a creative medium that has some money involved. And it's wild just seeing how the bucket of crabs is like, just to call yourself a D&D influencer, you will step on how many people to get on to, to step on top of that stuff. And it's something that we end up talking about all the time. I think that I saw and I think that Amanda and Brandon all saw that this was an artistic medium that was going to exist inside of podcasting. Another artistic medium that I care about deeply and I spend all of my time thinking about is like if we don't start working and doing exactly saying what we're going to do and then doing it then we're just kind of going to let the medium change under us and we're never going to be able to support the other people who we should be standing side by side on 
It's interesting, and, and this is, you know, kind of, this is obviously five year into your your podcasting journey, Eric, kind of talking about these things. Before you say this, the biggest difference is that now I want to say this in the first 15 minutes of the podcast yeah. <laughs> instead of like an hour in. Like that's that's the biggest change that I've been trying to get to after five, six years. But please go ahead. No, I was going to say, is I mean, is that something that you, that even then, that you said in the first 15 minutes of creating the podcast of of saying hey it's important for us to carve out a space and tell the story that we want to tell and the you know and not leave people out of the story as much as possible so that we can ensure other people have room to make to, to tell the stories in the way they want to be telling and ensure it's not a monolith. Uh, yes. is, is that A, accurate? And B, is that something that you had a sense of when you guys were starting? Or is that something that has kind of been developed as you've been kind of marinating in the space and seeing tons and tons of podcasts launch and stop stop releasing and relaunch mm-hmm. and continue and 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 all that? The two things I can say, the first episode of Join the Party started, one, with a gay wedding. Yep. In our fantasy world, which was always fun, which was incredibly fun to do and just like throwing out a royal wedding like that. And the second thing was that those episodes came out with specific audio tool tips like for you that that where we stopped the show and would jump in. We had a specific tool tip version teaching you how to play Dungeons and Dragons, which I still after six years, I have not seen something seamlessly that teaches you how to play D&D. I know that there are like talkbacks. I know that there are videos and inst- and articles, but I haven't seen anything else than what we we've done. And I'm sure it's out there. And if you have done it, please keep telling people this exists because I I don't see it. And I wish it was more of using the actual play form to actually make people understand how to play. Much like doing a tutorial in a video game where like you come to the corridor, there's like a, a wall there and then a tooltip comes up and says, uh, equip your equip your weapon to break through the wall. And then you break through the wall that had I have not seen that happen. So it was something we were always concerned about of like teaching people how to play to widen the to widen the, the net of people who could enjoy the space in the game. And then, of course, trying to make the everyone feel included. I think about a lot about the forms of stories. Good vanquishes evil and overcomes is such like a type of story I don't care about because I think it's like a a very sort of like Christian parable thing that I just don't understand. From my tradition, the tradition of of stories, of Jewish stories that I I are from are like, yeah, these people had a conflict and they're both kind of right and it's kind of gray and like no one's really happy in the end. It's like, (laughs) that sounds super interesting and I like that. Being able to bring that storytelling, I think, tradition to the stuff that I do is quite fun. And I like being able to tell the stories that we're able to do, whether we're talking about like a fantasy setting, magical realism, superhero story, uh, like a summer camp or what we're doing with like a, a pirate story with plant and bug people like we're doing now. The way you're talking strikes me as there is a clear vision, and certainly now five years in, there still is, but even at launch, there were things you guys wanted to prioritize, things you wanted to say, things you wanted people to experience, and that was not, I don't think, as common in, in 2018, or at least it didn't feel that way, uh, kind of retroactively. So what went in for you guys to that process, and why was that something that you're like, no, we're starting off with this, we are making these sorts of statements and we are laying this foundation for ourselves. Why was that so important to you? 
honestly, the creation of Join the Party was the backbone of what we do now on Multitude. And, you know, when we were pulling this together, I mean, it's me, I'm the head of creative, and Amanda McLaughlin, who's one of our players who created, who co-created the show, is now the CEO of Multitude. And Brandon Grugel, who edits the show and plays on the show, is our head of production. Like, this was the seed that turned into Multitude, the entity as a podcast collective studio making podcasts for other people and selling our own ads and being immersed in the podcast in in the podcast like financial space in that way the intention was always there this is what i do i have produced and launched i think like 15 shows by this point (laughs) both for like big media companies helping other people out with consulting or just continuing to do it right now like the four shows that i run now you got to be unique it's i don't know why we were ever trying to not be unique when I hear that an actual play podcast is like, we have a cool home game and now we're going to record it. And which was what everyone said in 2017, yep. 2018. I'm like, and still the same. I'm like, why? What's the point? Especially now where it's like, we're going to be in the next critical role. Like, why? How? It, how are you going to do that? Are you already, are all of you experienced voice actors that are on Geek and Sundry in 2015? Like, is that what you're going to do? I, It just, it didn't even make any sense. So I think that having a unique show that so that the show itself can stand out is essential to being a podcast because the show has to exist. Remember what I said about institutions? The show has to be able to stand on its own. The art can exist without you as a person being like out there on stage. It's a big difference between like the one man show you're about to do and like the artistic creation of the thing you're about to perform. The thing that we wanted, I think, is teaching people how to play and widen the net. Even in 2018, we saw that like this is a very specific group of people who know how to play this. I think about and I think a lot of people do the Adventure Zone balance as like the high watermark for this, the first crest of actual play. And I think about it a lot. One entire episode was references to Tom Baudet. I still don't know who that guy is. He no. was the on Motel 6? He was an actor? I don't know. I'm not really sure. I met Brandon while I was working at this media job. And like the, we were working on this project that was supposed to like solve podcast discovery. It's like the holy grail of podcasting. Like You're going to be able to find whatever you want because there's no algorithm in podcasting. This company invested a ton of money into into doing this and it never really went anywhere. And like I was we were kind of like putting playlists together, quote unquote, of episodes to start with. And I did the actual play genre. So I listened to the first episode of like all of the actual plays that existed in 2018. And then after a while where I was just like, I think that there are things here we can do. Uh, Brandon is an incredibly talented sound designer and editor. So it's like, we could definitely bring that here. Because this is a let's, let's let Brandon cook, you know? Like, this was also when, when uh, audio drama and audio fiction was cresting as well. We can bring this to actual play, you know? We can make, uh, Brandon knows how to use sound uh, Pro Tools really well. We're going to let him do it. He's a, he's a talented musician. He's going to do it. He's going to create music. Amanda was super new to the game. She learned how to play the game on Join the Party. And having someone who was coming to this like bright-eyed and bushy-tailed, I realized is incredibly important. You need someone who's not uh, immersed in the whole world, especially Amanda was too busy babysitting her younger siblings. She missed out on like a seven-year gap of pop culture. (laughs) And it's like, this is super important that she doesn't know. For example, if someone had contact with an alien and their chest is wriggling around, she wouldn't know that an alien's about to yeah. pop out. And that's kind of important for being able to tell a story and have everyone like come to it with uh, genuine emotion. 
later on. And then Julia Shavini, our one of our other players, joined, and she is like really, really good. Right, like the power player, not in like a destroy your world sort of way, but like a really good tabletop RPG player is something that like emerged in 2019 and 2020, as signified by like Lou uh, Lou Wilson and Emily Axford, and like that's for that's us, that's Julia for us, and she's really good at puzzles and she's really good at emoting on the microphone and uh, coming up with really really like complex characters, and that's something that came through from there. Like the widening of the net became different as the show went on. That was the change from season one being a fantasy story to season two being like a real world superhero story. Um, I mean, listen, the plot of campaign two was like a mad scientist discovered a new element and then turned a sleepy upstate New York town into a metropolis in 20 years, which then created superheroes. And like being able to take a tabletop RPG and apply it to a genre that wasn't fantasy was really important, and I I, re- I wrote a ton of stuff about reskinning 5th edition to work that way. Uh, and then the next step from there is like, okay, let's play something other than D&D. Then we played Monster of the Week for a mini campaign. And I think now what we're doing in the third campaign, we're using a lot of classes from Baldur's Spire of Secrets from Maychan Press, yep. so we're moving away from official Wizard of the Coast stuff, which we don't need. I reworked a lot of like the species components. I, I, did a, I do a lot of my own game design that kind that is all towards making this as enjoyable of a podcast experience as possible for you. Like, I hate initiative. I think initiative bogs down not only the game, but especially actual plays. So I come up with my own ways for us to do fights in something that, like a a game system that is for epic storytelling, but involves combat. And being able to use combat and allow everyone to do combat is, is still important, even if initiative slows everything to a goddamn mud crawl. So that's what I think is moving it forward. It's like, yeah, we don't teach people how to play anymore because we're here in 2023, but we sure do use third-party classes. We barely use any. I don't think I've – I barely look at, like, the monster manual ever. And if I do, I'll reskin something, and I feel confident as a GM and the the I'll say. Uh, I've also been doing this heel turn where I call myself the best DM in podcasting constantly. But yep. I am the best DM in podcasting. That's true. Uh, but my confidence as a DM and a game designer has never been higher. And I want to give that to my players and also to the audience. Something that is interesting that you bring up and something that I think about a lot is is having opinions on yeah. on design <laughs> and and on the experience True. and on podcasts and on consuming it and and about the stories that you're telling kind of in the mediums both kind of as you're as you're talking now and certainly in the products you're putting out and 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 just in how you are stylizing things that it it always struck me as you and you guys collectively are people who have opinions on how things should be run and how things should sound and how things flow nicely and should grow and leave space for others and yeah. run and all that kind of stuff how did you go about forming those opinions you know like is that something you just passively consumed them were you listening to all of those podcasts with that kind of mindset or or how did you approach it to get to the point where you are where you were when you launched and where you are today something that i care about a lot in podcasting because podcasting is a team sport i know that the majority of art is but i think that like it really is like rowing the boat everyone needs to do it 
again, I have a lot of people who work in movies and TV. So it's like, I know that everyone has a job, but ultimately it comes down to whatever the director or the network says. And it's also like not writing a book where, or blogging where it is one person. Podcasting really requires like five people or more, or however number of people, let's say four or four in my case, to be working together and rowing the boat at the same time. To that point, you need to make sure your artistic team is like an adventuring party. Everyone needs different skills and they should be allowed to do those skills. Let them have their lane. Why is the cleric trying to track a fox? Yeah. Why is the wizard up front absorbing damage? And I think that that's an issue we run into a lot in podcasting, how one person is kind of like, or one uh, entity when we're talking about, you know, when I make a show for a company, they tell me what to do. And I'm like, I know better than you. And they're like, no, you have to do exactly what I say. An adventuring party, everyone needs to do what they do. So for me, I spend, uh, I'm going to talk about all the people Then I'm going to answer your question of what I think about Julia, again, as an, as, uh, as a voice actor and as a great player, she thinks about, and I think I give her the responsibility to like, keep me grounded in like the player DM relationship and the player GM relationship. Like what is, what is Julia need to flourish? And she will do it as best as possible. But also I got to like make sure to water the ground, you know, like give her the thing that she needs. And she really keeps me creatively grounded in that way. I mean, Brandon, as our editor and sound designer, he spends a lot of time thinking about that stuff and like what sounds good in audio right now in 2023. And we all let him go to work, you know, yep, totally. and Amanda, Amanda, again, as a new player, but also as like a business minded person. We let her do business stuff. You know, she's incredibly smart about uh, marketing and about business. And we let her we let her cook. Obviously, we have we contribute our ideas, but she's the one who's like, I think this will work the best. And we allow we allowed her to, to do that. For me, I spend a lot of time thinking about like, what are tabletop RPGs for? I think the actual play is an incredibly interesting genre in that, like, we're not doing long form improv. That stuff existed in podcasting already. But the actual play genre is was like a scaffold or an engine for making stories happen. And I think that we forgot that at some point with what I call the LAification of the actual play genre that exists right now. The highest crust being people who are actors and professionally are actors playing Dungeons and Dragons 5th edition, rules light. So it's almost long form improv. And then they have like the budget to and the uh, spaces and the cameras and the film set to record themselves, which is fine. And that exists. And a lot of people love that stuff. And I'm not saying that they're not incredibly talented and successful, and they are. But it's like the art form doesn't need to be like that. And I think a, a counter wave that exists, which I think also comes from all the people who are who are like, you could do an actual play show of my tabletop RPG that I've been working on, is that there are games that literally aid in the creation of a story on in audio. And I don't want to forget the game design element because it's like games are supposed to do something specifically yes it's supposed to have fun but fun with intent with an intention another i again i spent so much time listening to the to the adventure zone and this one is in, is a kind of like a big uh is a big pet peeve of mine the number of people who use the quiet year by avery alder as world as a world building game that eventually then becomes a campaign uh, a, a dungeon and dragons campaign I think Avery Alder is incredibly talented. I love The Quiet Year. I love the form of The Quiet Year. I think the pulling of cards is great. I love the table. The Quiet Year was specifically created to be an ephemeral game 
The game literally exists that the Frost Maidens or the Frost Knights come in and destroy everything you've done at the end of winter, at the end of four rounds. The events are created to, to be ephemeral. People should not use this <laughs> for this, but Griffin McElroy got it from Austin Walker doing it once, and then he did it, and now all these people do it. I'm like, I beg y'all to find any other world-building game to do this for, because this specific one is not giving you the thing you want. It's going to give you something that's haunted and weird that should have been wiped out and should not exist. I ended up creating world-building games that I've run on Join the Party. I have them up and I put all my game design stuff on the join the party merch store. It's called uh, one of them is it's a pack of three games called three ga short games to tell stories with. So I ended up creating it because I'm like, I need someone to use something else. Like I, you, 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 you got to use the game in the way it should be made instead of just doing what you heard one, the most popular person do. Got to remember what the intention of everything is for. And I think using games as literally the engine of what we're doing and as the jumping off point of like the, the, the rules can help us tell the stories that is not loose, that that is kind of like a, an interesting counterculture uh, to this artistic form, the artistic mode that we're currently in with the most popular version of what we do. So something that that also kind of stood out to me that I think ties into that is is your different your guys different campaigns uh, or mini campaigns. All of the things are all very different <laughs> yeah. they're all they're all they're all very flavorfully different you start again started high fantasy and the most recent one is everyone's vegetable pirate and like <laughs> to be honest with you i feel like i was coming back to the high fantasy to camp totally. one because it's like i was so disaffected by like fantasy stories at the time in like 2019 2020 where i'm like you guys aren't really you know i thought that sci-fi and fantasy was supposed to be like a metaphor for what's currently going on and you guys are just doing whatever you're doing this was also like very final three movies of star wars at the time and i'm like i just i cannot touch fantasy right now i'm going to do some real real people real world stuff and then i feel like i'm coming back to it now totally with new i got really inspired by andor and i'm like you know what i actually no we're we're, we're back to this being metaphor we got it we got it how do you go about not just kind of deciding hey this sounds interesting right mm -hmm. and and like oh here's a, an idea that's percolating that either i've come up with or that we kind of collectively have come up with how do you marry that with what you get what you think is interesting and fun and just kind of inspires you with that intent piece sure with the hey what are we getting at here you know what's the core of what we do how do you you know kind of what's the process of either discovering or kind of putting forth that level of intention and that level of kind of awareness around this is the story that we're making. Here's why we're making it. And here's the tools we're using to fit the genre of podcasting and to fit the genre of tabletop role-playing games. I can tell you how we, yeah, I can definitely tell you how we did it. We've been considering what we're going to do for campaign three for like two years. When before then, we're in the middle of campaign two. And this was also of like, maybe we should play a different game other than Dungeons and Dragons. Mm -hmm. My artistic intention, I never want to drop that wholly on my players. Yeah. Because I, I'm definitely the one who spends the most time on like tabletop RPG Twitter, buying new tabletop RPGs, reading stuff, doing game design. Like I'm very much immersed in that. So I'm never going to be like, hey, fuckers. <laughs> we're gonna play blades in the dark get yep. ready yeah <laughs> like we're playing lancer learn how to play lancer i also need to do something that i think is going to make sense so i'm like we should play a different game we've all played some powered by the apocalypse games 
are we interested in doing Monster of the Week? And we talked about it, and Powered by the Apocalypse games are very form-following function. So we kicked around Masks and Monster Hearts, too, and Monster of the Week. And we're like, we're going to try to play a different game for at least a mini campaign. And then we ended up coming around. We're like, oh, we really like Monster of the Week. I think Julia suggested uh, doing it at summer camp, and it was the camp pain, right? We're like, okay, yeah, we're in. We got it. And that was like, we're going to learn Monster of the Week enough to teach people to feel confident that we can record this on a microphone and also lead our audience in there so no one feels left behind. For campaign three, I knew we we kicked around. We're like, do we want to return to Dungeons and Dragons? And I think that I, we all came to this conclusion together. That it's like, this is just a game we love that we've been playing for five years now. And the company of Wizard of the Coast and of Hasbro does not own the game. They don't own everyone's experiences at their own table. So we're going to do what we're going to do. And this was also very much around the time of like, I'd met a lot of these third-party creators at PAX Unplugged. Maychan Mike, the Mike who runs uh, Maychan Press, is incredible, and he told me all about all the stuff, and I was really excited about Valdis for a while. So even then, I was like, well, yeah, we're going to work with these 30-hardware people because people are doing really interesting stuff that's outside of the Wizard of the Coast Citadel, you know what I mean? So we were going to do that anyway, and then the OGL stuff clarified that even more. I was part of like that group of people who made the made the petition. It was great to be able to put that together, but it's like no one owns this game. It's a game you experience at your own table and no amount of Chris Pine movie or books that they're continuously raising the price on is going to take that away. I have a lot of people who play a lot of people who play Magic the Gathering, too. But like the, the, the time of playing Magic the Gathering has nothing to do with the amount of drops and the amount of secret cards and like media mashups that they drop. You know, like you can't own someone's game experience. And I think that's something that we're trying to bring to campaign three of like, we're going to use Dungeons and Dragons because I think it's a flexible game system that will be able to make us tell the action story that we want to tell. But I'm going to create my own species. The character bonuses are usually come down to traditions, which are based on these countries that I've made. I've never touched a piece of Unforgotten Realms in my entire life. I don't care about Baldur's Gate. I don't get it. I don't care about Waterdeep. I have my own cities here. That's the most insidious thing that I think that the D&D movie has locked in, trying to tell you that like a story set in Baldur's Gate is the same as Dungeons and Dragons the game. It's not. It's the it's the IP book you are shoving you are including alongside the game system. It's just a game system. So I think that the intention was like we want to do something else. We can kick around pirates and cowboys and stuff like that. I'm like, I think we want to do pirates and everyone, my players all love plants a lot. So we started coming. I started coming up with this land and we all put it together. I'm like, we're going to come back to D&D, but we're going to do it on these terms that I've done a ton of research on. And everyone's like, great. We love, we know because I've talked to them a lot about the whole Dungeons and Dragons stuff that's been happening over the last few years, especially it's, it's wonderful when you have someone who knows how to like analyze, uh, like investor reports that comes out from Hasbro every <laughs> yeah. quarter. It's really fun. Uh, so I, I'm extra, inf- I'm extra informed on that. It was like, but we're going to tell it our own way using third party content and um, tell the story that we want to on our, on this piece of art that we have. As I'm sure, you know, obviously a lot of kind of online discourse, I think rightfully on, in TTRPGs is, Hey, there are games for the thing you want to run. It doesn't have to be a D&D sure. 5e. Yeah. And I find that certainly to be true. We have a lot of non-5e uh, players and creators and writers and stuff on this show all the time. And I think generally they are correct for the vast majority of people. 
there's just another game out there that could just capture this vibe or this genre much better than D&D in terms of what is in the books and what is kind of like just pick up, play, it's easy, there you go. How did you kind of come to terms with deciding I am looking this exclusively as the D20 engine, basically, and I'm trusting these numbers and I'm just going to run with this, but then I'm going to essentially make my own game on top of it. Was it just kind of out of a a degree of necessity where it's like my players aren't interested in playing a new game and that's fine and I like designing stuff, so I'm going to do it? Or was there kind of like a process you had to go through to kind of divorce your brain from, hey, here's what D&D is with paladins and with all these other things versus this is a D20 system and I'm just treating it like a D20 system and I'm just going to graft whatever I want to onto it. Listen, I consider myself a game designer. I've created a lot of games for us to play on the microphone to tell an audio story. I'm very interested in pushing it forward. I mean, I was incredibly inspired by the stuff they've been doing on Dimension 20 over the last few years. It's like, I want to push this particular form forward using a D20 system and see what happens. Also, like, I want to make sure that we're as comfortable as possible playing the system. We've been playing D&D for five years. Uh, I also want to say, I love all the other games that are out there. I've been listening to Friends of the Table for a very long time. Austin Walker and the crew over there has introduced me to so many different systems, and I've used quite a lot of them and played games with them. I'm not trying to fix D&D. I'm trying to tell a story on a microphone using some of my own game system stuff. And if it's if it feels like it's grafted onto Dungeons & Dragons, fine. Uh, I understand the play of any other game crowd, but I think that that's talking to people who refuse to play anything else. It's it's the it's the monopoly and the hegemony, mm-hmm. I think, of D&D that those people are fighting against. It's like, I am 100% with you. I'm not spending a dime of that. My players like this system, and it tells my artistic story the best, so I'm going to do it. We did something called the... Uh, the one shot derby, which is where we created characters that we would run for one shots of rules like games. We did that right before campaign three. So it was like Battle of the Brontes was a one page, uh, a one page RPG uh, created by Oliver Darkshire, where like sisters have to try not to die as they're writing their their uh, masterpiece. And this is really fun to play. So like, I'm ready. I'm ready to play any of these games. But I do think that in the current landscape, if you're going to have an actual play show, Dungeons and Dragons is the most is the most flexible for exact to do the exact thing you want to do and can go in so many different directions. The most number of people know how to play it. So sometimes it is like an art. It's an artistic choice in the pool of podcasting. But that doesn't mean you shouldn't play other shows. I mean, this is what we're talking about. Uniqueness, right? Like we've been running the show for six years and our remit is teaching people how to play and making the making the net as big as possible for as many people. It is unique for you to play a different game system. Jenna Steber plays in Burnt Cookbook Party, which is an actual play show, and they play Pathfinder, and they just tell people they play D&D. And, like, that's <laughs> it, it's funny, uh, but I think that it also shows that, like, you can play whatever show you want. You can play whatever game you want. If you want to stand out, play a different game. You're 100% correct. But, like, this is where we're at as a show that's been doing this for six years. If I was starting a new show right now, I would not play Dungeons & Dragons, no. But this is what we have, and this is what we do. That, to me, kind of brings up another thing that I've, I've heard you talk about a lot and I think is shown on your show is the, the concept of cheating out to the audience. Yeah. You know, and I think, I think every actual play does it differently. Uh, some, not at all. Some, it is literally we chuck microphones in the middle and that's our show. And, you know, that is a choice. Sometimes it is we are exclusively cheating out to the audience and everyone knows that we're all just like this is just 
us all having fun. We were very aware that the audience is there and there's tons of sliders and dials for, for all of that. Mm-hmm. And you talked a little bit about it where like, hey, I think D&D 5e gives us the framework to produce the stories we want. We're providing the audience with what they want. But I think that also kind of, for me, begs that extra question of, hey, we are creating a show, like you said. Yes. What does that mean to you? And and what is it that, not just in terms of the practical choices you guys make, which I would love to hear about, yeah. but also about the kind of philosophy and the kind of mindset that goes into, hey, we are not just playing a game, and we're not just playing a game that we enjoy and therefore making it sustainable and nice and something that we can connect with and get excited about, but we're doing so in a way that is authentic and accessible to the audience. Mm-hmm. So a- as you guys have kind of made that part of your core design philosophy, what does that mean for you guys? And what might it mean to anyone uh, who's listening um, and, and who might be trying to consider that for themselves? I think that finding the balance between playing the game and doing like a show is essential to actual play. I think you have the things on both sides, right? On one side is what I said before is something that's pretty much just long form improv, <laughs> which is like hello totally. from the magic tavern is all the way over there. They don't play a game. They just do it. And it's incredible. Yeah. They are, they yeah. are improvers. They know how to do it. They create characters. It, they are locked into their choices. It's great. So that's all the way on, on the right. And then all the way on the left is putting a microphone in the middle of a table and just playing your game. No edits at all. Just, it is what it is. And like that used to exist, and I I assume that's what they do on Critical Role. That's why episodes are are so long. But at the same time, they are doing a lot because it's everyone they're on a film set. It looks better than anyone else's show. So that's not even the example. Like imagine, so on one side is long form improv, and the other side is just plopping a, a microphone down in someone's basement. And just recording, which are a lot of shows I listened to in 2016 and 2017. I'll tell you that much. And now. Yes. It is a professional hazard of mine that it's like I can't listen to as that much actual play because it like makes my brain hurt. I start thinking about like what I would do and like how and how this fits in the artistic form and everything. Yeah, it's a it's a real bummer of me that launching an actual play podcast has really fucked up my own ability to enjoy actual play podcasts. There's like four that I listen to with any regularity yeah. that I, I'm not torturously like, oh, well, I wouldn't have done it that way. Yes. Or I would have done this or actually, oh, this is interesting. And just it's too loud in my brain. Oh, that's so much better than I would have thought. Oh, my God. Oh, right. Or or that makes me feel bad for for my own show yeah. or whatever but that's you know my own personal bad brain but anyway yes exactly but i think that the important thing is trying to find that center of like gameplay let's assume gameplay is on the left and performance is on the right act the actual play genre i feel like should be squarely in the middle and not like and not like centrism in that way but it's like both things are equally important and we got to put a lot of time and energy into making sure both exist listening to people actually play the game instead of like editing out all the thinking and supposing and like working out of a plan. I like hearing the plan, them coming up with the plan together, making sure you don't throw out the rules a hundred percent. You know, I understand, especially with D and D there are rules that just don't make any sense for what we're trying to do here. But at the same time, it's like, you got to follow the rules on some level. You got to know the rules so that you can play the game that's actually there again. It's fine if you don't want to, if you're doing something that's incredibly rules light, but um, that might as well just be long form improv. And I don't think that that's what we're going for here. It's another thing of like once an art form develops, and I think this is podcasting of how it gets like put in the hands of people in power, like tech tech guys and Hollywood people and everything. And it's like, well, no, 
I thought that this was this was something that we could all do. And I think the thing that we can do that grounds it in the hands of the many is like, remember that we can we, you, the game is the backbone of what you're doing. And then that's how you can stand out and be unique. Like, let the game take you in direction. So you're not just like you don't have to be a professional improver to uh, have a show that people love. Something that I think is always important for demystifying actual play stuff and tabletop role playing games, uh, kind of like you said, is showing the stuff that gets edited out or at least acknowledging, I should say, acknowledging the stuff that gets edited out. Mm. Are there times where you guys have to stop and be like, I don't think that works for a podcast or you have to re-record stuff or you have to like say, hey, can you actually say that again? Uh, because I know that happens on our show a good amount is like, hey, this this is what you just said. It's great, but it's not going to translate to a podcast. So can you say it a little differently or can you can we come back and re-record that later or something? So what goes for you guys in terms of the kind of actual boots on the ground execution of we're making this a game based show, but also we're making it a show like what what's kind of the the making the sausage portion of that for for folks who might be interested? Yeah, I mean, we definitely do retakes. We definitely, like, set things up. We talk about things off the microphone and set it up as best as possible. I think that, like, this, I always think about the pre-production of any show is where you put a lot of work into it so that the production shines. You gotta be as real as possible on the microphone. Like, the mm -hmm. microphone's there to capture what you're thinking and feeling at the moment. So you want to be as free and ready to have fun as possible when, when you're playing. But at the same time, it's like, I don't want to say that th things aren't as composed as you think they are, yeah. but there is composition. Yeah. I mean, that's literally yeah. why we have the after party. Like the after party exists the, as part of the remit of teaching people how to play was like we were going to talk about the gameplay behind the episodes that we just recorded. Um, and like what I was thinking, what the players were thinking, how it all came together. So, yeah, that's why it exists in the first place. So I 100 percent agree. But at the same time, there's also like a thing about actual play being a magic trick. A really big worry I have is when I tell people I do, I have planned a lot or did not plan for something at all. Totally. And I think that that's like something that people love to hear if the DM was like, hi, I have no notes. I didn't know that was going to happen. But at the same time, it's like then you but then I just showed you how the magic trick worked. Right. Mm -hmm. Like the, 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 mm -hmm. the magic's gone. So now you're like, oh, lol, Eric doesn't make any notes. Yeah, it's not it's not real because he's making it up right now. Yeah. As opposed to, oh, no, he this is all a real world. And this is reads are real characters who are all, you know, all present and all have their machinations in the side. It's like, oops, I had to make that up is a different. Yeah. Can be a different vibe for some people, for sure. So it's just a hard balance to find between them. I think also, like, I try to hold myself to I heard this somewhere. I don't even remember is like I try not I try to hold myself to the the level of don't plan more than half as long as you think you're going to play. Yeah. So if you have like a two hour session, you shouldn't plan for more than an hour. But at the same time, I'm creating a show. I'm creating a fantasy right. book at the same time. And I got to write all this stuff down. Also, I'm a game designer. I got to design, design some games here. I love having games and within games. I love using all the tricks that you can do at a session to make it extra fun for people or using the D20 system to your advantage or playing a different game inside of a game to make sure that it, it, you're doing the thing that you want. But I do put a ton of work into other stuff. But it, it, so it's it's hard. It's like when I know what's going to happen, I sometimes I don't need to plan anything because I want to see what my players do next. Yeah, because I can't do anything until I see what they do. Right. Uh, actual play or ta tabletop RPGs is all call and response. I do something, then you do something, then I do something, then you do something, then I do something, then you do something. And then sometimes I'll drop in an extra thing to make it narratively interesting. Yeah. 
so I can't plan too far in advance because then I'm just going to throw out those notes. But at the same time, I'm planning the whole world so far in advance, right? Or something that I planned three months ago will then pay off now. So it's like I don't plan too much because I need to see what my players will do. But at the same time, I have built the entire world upon which we stand. And that sure does take a lot of work. Yeah, you, you put in the work up front to have it be this cohesive thing. And then once you're there, you're like, cool, I just need a couple sentences and let's rock and roll and we'll go from there. Yes, exactly. It's also hard, like, running the show at the same time. Like, I feel my that I am the showrunner here, but also, like, all four of us are producing the show at the same time. So this is, like, a lot to do. Like, we stream, we make Patreon episodes, um, we have to, like, we're marketing the show at the same time, like, and also I'm producing three other shows and doing that for those as well. There's just, there's a lot to do. So it's, like, I like being able to put as much or as little work into what I'm going to do for the next <laughs> session. Yeah. I want them to know what I did, but at the same time, I'm realizing more and more that, like, I'm actually just revealing how a magic trick works. Yeah. Now everyone keeps send, sending me that one meme. Do you get this or this one, like, Instagram reel where it's, like, a player steals a DM's notebook and opens it up and they're, like, it's empty yeah, and, I'm like, yeah. <laughs> and i'm like you misunderstand what i'm doing here sir yeah exactly just because i'm not showing you my notes in in a hard cover thing doesn't mean they don't exist but also it's complicated yeah it's all it's all up here i think about that shit all the time yeah exactly I saw a lot where like a tweet that's been going around with all like the AI WGA yeah. stuff that's been happening. It's like, we don't need AI to help us write anything. It's called a long shower. <laughs> and I'm like, yeah, dude. Something that you you've talked a lot about and something that that I think a lot of a lot of DD specifically podcasts do or or shows do rather, um, is where are there gaps in this show or in this system, excuse me. Yeah. And then how can I fill it with another game or another mechanic or how can I kind of massage it and steal from here, steal from that and massage it in so that it tells the story we want with the rules that we need to make sure it happens. Mm -hmm. I'm going to do the thing that I very rarely do on this show, which is ask for specific examples, (laughs) but, but, but only because I like, I also am someone who thinks a lot about, okay, what is five E what can five E do? Well, what does it not do well? What are the gaps? How is there good fulfilling ways for me to to bring stuff in from other places and just kind of graft it on seamlessly as much as possible and just keep things moving in a way that is entertaining to the audience? Of course. Are there any particular game systems or mechanics from not 5e that you've kind of been been dragging in, not necessarily even just different subclasses and different classes, which I know you are doing, especially in campaign three, yes. but of whole of whole kind of mini games, like you've said, uh, that either you've come up with or that you've taken from others and kind of massaged into place. Yeah, I mean, let's start with those world building games that I referenced, three short yeah. games to build stories. Um, I created this game called Bro, You Had to Be There, <laughs> which is about uh, being able to tell a story that happened somewhere else that someone's telling to your main PCs. And that one's that one was really fun. I did that where like uh <laughs> <laughs> like a group of people got kidnapped by a bit by a big bad and then it was told by like an impressionable 21 year old back to the pcs <laughs> mm-hmm. and like they using the game i didn't just tell it to them they we came up with what happened together which which was really fun using like some tables and some prompts uh so the world building stuff is something i care about a lot i think understanding i mean this is kind of simple but the mixed success the mixed successes totally. from powered by the apocalypse games is really important especially in terms of like i think that the d20 the biggest flaw of the d20 system is like 
one is a massive failure and like two to nine is not is like bad and then like 10 and up is a success like there needs to be a little bit more flexible also no one likes it when you say nope you can't do that you messed up like you can do it but it fails miserably or there's a massive problem or using like a mixed success of like this happens but only for a short amount of time you don't it's not explicit but i think it's something that i keep in my head a little bit more I've been trying to like say DCs out loud a little more, which mm. is a trick I picked up from Brendan Lee Mulligan, which I really love, just so that everyone kind of knows where we're at. Again, like I love what I love about uh, the, a two D six system is that everyone knows that like one two to six is is fail, yeah. seven and nine is mixed, and ten up is uh, is a great success. I'm only able to really add this mixed success stuff in after playing Monster of the Week for ten for like twenty episodes with my players, um, so that they understand what's going on. They're still players, so it's like one of my uh, Brandon suggesting is like, oh, well, maybe like if I get like two below the DC, maybe it's like a mixed success. I'm like, no, that's not how a D20 system works. And I know you just want to succeed more <laughs> because you roll like garbage. <laughs> it's like, no, I, a D20 system has hard numbers. Like the the point of the reason why there are so many numbers on the D20 is that each one has a five percent chance, and it's not squishy. Like a D like a two D six system, which has a has a beautiful bell curve that we all know and love. The point is, is that you can roll any one of those numbers equally, and that number needs to exist in the way that it is. We're not looking for a range nearly as much as we are with a two D six system. But I think that understanding what consequences happen when you roll something is very important. It also reminds me that more often than not, I should probably just like roll contests. You know, like that's easy. Yeah. And mm-hmm. that's just like so much, it's so much cleaner and clearer. Yeah. Is who, who was the biggest number? Easy. There we go. I learned that from kids on bikes. That That's, that's mm-hmm. another helpful one is like the difference between a contest. It's really helpful, especially if you want to try to resolve some combat uh, outside of and slowing everything down to a crawl with initiative. I also want to talk a little bit about genre and story. Yeah. And, and really more specifically, just. Uh, to get your personal insights, what are you, you talked early in this episode about kind of some of the stuff that you're not interested in story-wise, something, things that don't excite you, but doing this, especially for five years um, and having obviously just consumed books and media and stuff uh, before, during, and after starting a podcast, are there things that you have either uh, experienced or realized about yourself in terms of what are the types of stories that you enjoy making and and or consuming or themes that you see yourself going back to or interested in exploring or things like that and how do you connect with them yeah i think i can use some things that i've referenced throughout this conversation i think Mm -hmm. uh, i was really inspired by andor to return to a fictional world that i made like I said, I think this was also like I had read name of the name of the wind books, and I'm like Patrick Rothfuss really said not all men multiple times explicitly, and and like allowed his Mary Sue to like have sex with a sex a, an awesome sex fairy for like a hundred yep. pages, huh? And I was just like really kind of burnt out on the fantasy medium, especially this was also like when everyone started doing high fantasy as their first campaign in actual play. So I'm like, I want to move away from this. I was also like, this was the tail end of Marvel of the the big Marvel push. So I'm like, I love superheroes, but I know there's something a little bit more complicated we can do. And I also love sl- slipstream and magic realism fiction. So that was something I was really attracted to, which is why we ended up playing so many games with real. People people like not not fantasy species and races and stuff yeah but at the same time now i'm come back like andor reminded me that like you know star wars was only bad because jj abrams boofed it so hard right 
the thing that I wanted so much, which I got from Andor, is like, what is it like living in a world that has an empire? Yeah. Where there are actively rebels and space monks powered by love fighting against a literal empire and a, and yeah. a literal uh, emperor. And I think that I got that from Andor and I got really excited to do a fictional world again and being able to hop in. Also, shout out to One Piece. I mean, One Piece is a massive inspiration, but also seeing something explicitly about like the world government is bad and holding everyone down. And like there are different ways of like being uh, someone outside of the norm, which I think is what a pirate is in One Piece is like, you know, Luffy wants to be a pirate because no one wants to. He doesn't want anyone to tell him what to do and he wants to go out on adventures and other people want to be pirates because they want ultimate power and fame and riches and they want to hurt others. And I think that I love that spectrum there. It's also something that, you know, moving away from a incredibly like black and white Christian story of good overcoming evil. People, the stories I'm attracted to, I think, are a lot of factions coming together, trying to all do the same thing at the same time. It's something that I've learned that from Blades in the Dark. I still have not figured out a way to play Blades in the Dark, but I really I really love <laughs> It's hard, man. And getting everyone to know how to play Blades in the Dark is really, really difficult. I think Blades in the Dark is a game you got to play with the rules and like Austin Walker and the, and the folks over at um, uh friends of the table play have played some really interesting blades in the dark games but i've read the book over many times because i'm really fascinated by the flashback mechanic and also i love oh, the yeah. circles the circles are really interesting yeah. to me i i really care about stuff happening off screen because when you create a world like the players are doing one thing but like that means that they're not doing the other thing and that's happening somewhere else mm-hmm. those stories of ever of groups of people trying to do things at the same time in a really lived in world and no one being right necessarily even our even with our yeah. protagonists everyone's just doing it for the reasons they're doing it and everyone being kind of gray and then seeing what happens at the end i like that those are the stories i like and i think that's that comes from you know not having specifically only white cis uh christian males telling telling stories you know yeah absolutely I also really want, I mean, I care a lot about putting Jewish themes forward. Yeah. I'm standing arm in arm with all of the other people who are doing the things for their specific version of representation. Like, Three Black Halflings is incredible. The stuff we're having on Transplanter is incredible. Uh, Asians represent. It's all incredible. I'm just trying to do that for Jews. Because, like, I think about it every so often. I, this struck me at one point. I'm like, has any Jewish person been on, like, a really well-known actual play thing i thought about it and like i used my jewish geography <laughs> of seeing if i knew anybody through stuff and it's like yeah there's some they like yeah, there are half jews and stuff but like no one explicitly talks about it when like there is so much lapsed catholic stuff happening on all of the major actual play stuff that are like i need to, i need someone else to create a religion who's not a lapsed catholic you know what i mean yeah, and that that was I think one of the last things that I did really want to to kind of talk to you about uh, yeah. and one of in that I have eight, again 8,000 more questions that are there. I'm here. I'm here, man. Nathan hit me. I love this. One of the last things I wanted to to ask was bringing yourself, your experiences, your background, your culture, your Jewish heritage, your just kind of your worldview and your experience being yourself. That is something that you obviously just talked about, but also I know that is something that comes up a lot in the games, has come up in other interviews, and is clearly something that is very meaningful uh, for you and something that you've prioritized and something that you really push for. What, A, drove you to make that kind of almost stand, you know, of saying, hey, this is what I'm bringing to it. And this is these are the stories that are important for me. And this is how I want to explore it. But also, what has it meant to put that out there 
and be here five years later where people are listening to it and are connecting with it. And you're able to kind of bring that authentic self to it and have people respond to it. Yeah, I mean, it's a good question. I think the thing that I realized is like, I can't wait for someone else to do it or I can't yeah. wait for someone to put their hand out and bring me up because the reason why they're in power means that the the thing that they care about is there. You gotta do the things you care about and do it loudly and do it obviously. You can't do it subtly or quietly and hope that someone will notice. So I'm just trying to be myself and do it out there. I still don't see, you know, religions that aren't reskinned Catholicism, whether those religions are good or bad. I still don't see uh, you know, all heavens are Christian heavens and all have and all hells have the the Christian devil in it. And the stories are always good triumphing over evil and it being clear cut and it ends with a resolved ending. I still don't. That's all that's out there. And I just want to I just want to do it. It, it. I want it to exist. So I got to put it out there is ultimately what it comes down to. And I'm doing that for myself and I'm trying to do it for Jews. And a lot of people are doing it for the, for seeing their own identities out there. And I think that's awesome and imp and important. When you wait for someone else to put their hand out and bring you up there, I think that you sometimes I feel like it's just going to be there to be like tokenized or to check a box off. And I feel for the people who've had to do that. But I also understand that like you can't turn down a great opportunity if it comes to you. I just I feel for those people that that's out there. And um, it's just the weird this weird thing of being a, of having a personal brand and making create and making right. stuff and going on people's shows. But the least I can do is just make the thing here and the thing that I my own artistic uh, thing. But if you want me to come on your show and bring some <laughs> and bring some strong kick ass Jewish energy, I'm there. Uh, let me let me on. <laughs> Matt Mercer, I'm here. <laughs> I'm here. I'm here. Bring me on. Matt Mercer, noted listener of Reckless to Talk. Uh, yeah. Be sure to to you know check it out in the show notes. It's kind of funny you say that because it's like I I should say more often. If anyone wants to talk to me, whether you work at Wizards of the Coast, whether you run a very a very big show, I'm here. I want to talk about this stuff all the time, and I can help if that's what you want. But I think that people are want to do the thing that they want to do. But I'm even if I'm being critical, I will talk to you. My consulting fee is right here, my man. I'll tell you <laughs> how much for me to tell you the thing. I care about this. I think about the form a lot. I've been in the form for six plus years. If uh, but, you know, I think they want to listen to themselves instead. And I understand you've been creating content for a long time. You've been a, a person in public for a long time and on, on the online public, which is uh, it's all its own beast. Mm. And, you, you, you know, you started at a, you know, just kind of you did not have existing podcast properties or you were right. not a an established uh, actor or anything like that. People forget that everyone started out as nothing. You think that like everyone came out of the womb with like 10 and voiceover credits. <laughs> also true. Uh, but. Just as you're kind of thinking and looking around and seeing even now as we're talking, there is a, a logo of a podcast collective on the door behind you. What does that mean for you? This is my studio that I'm in, yeah. in that my full-time job in my office, in my office here. It's, on, it's honestly incredible. Is that something that you that you spend time thinking about or that strikes you frequently? And just how do you look back on the time spent and on the the hardships and on the the amount of work that has gone into it, but also the successes and of the kind of little, the small and large triumphs uh, along the way. I think I'm going to end up talking about like media and podcasting at large, <laughs> mm -hmm. that instant, like the institution that exists within this. Yeah. 
actual play serves to masters both the podcast the the content creation space and the tabletop rpg space and i think some people a lot of them are more in the tabletop rpg space and like you know a lot of people don't know me there i find myself like in the podcasting world a lot or at least like in the media world i love coming on these shows and i want to be in the tabletop rpg space more I guess because I wasn't on streams or whatever. I see all these streams. I'm like, who are these people? How do you all know each other? Do you all live in LA together? I don't get it. I, I look at this more from the media angle. When I got out of college, I used to work at um, this blog at NYU called NYU Local. Think about like a student newspaper, but we were like Gawker instead of like a newspaper. <laughs> yeah, got it. And, you know, there were all these jobs that were going to be there. Like we could all go work at Gawker or the Village Voice or at Jezebel or something, right? Or at the Bustle Media Group. And they were, all these existed. And like, oh, I was going to go into blogging after this. And then like in 2012, all those jobs disappeared. Everyone's like, there were never any jobs. What are you talking about? There are no jobs. And it's like the the ladder was pulled up behind us in terms of media, at least living in New York City. You know, I wanted to be a journalist, but I didn't know how. And I thought and it was all kind of gone uh, by the time that I got out of college. All the people who are part of Multitude is like we found our way into podcasting, even though those doors were still were closed to us. Like we didn't work at any public radio stations and like those private pub, private podcasting companies didn't exist yet. So it's like through hook or by crook, we didn't have any mentors. We just kind of learned how to edit and how to record and edit ourselves. And we figured this out. Like, thank God I met Brandon at that job because he taught me <laughs> how to record and edit. And then I actually started my job in podcasting, being able to leave and starting our own company and allowing people to make money and have this be their real lives the real jobs is incredible it's a really nice feeling we're constantly like vying for respect and notoriety and for people to listen to our shows and it's constantly you're making stuff but i also love making stuff no one's going to lay me off nathan it's something that i <laughs> tell myself all the time especially as so many places have been hit with layoffs both like in the media space and in the table to and in the uh, and Hasbro laying people off and um, podcast companies laying people off and absolute rip to waypoint, which I will miss deeply as just like destroying an entire games arm <laughs> of Vice. <laughs> if Vice is going bankrupt, the whole thing is 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 wild. I I truly remember how badly I wanted to work at BuzzFeed. I remember they there was a, the offices were above a, a Home Depot in in Midtown, and I've been there like like a few times, and I wanted to work there so bad, and I applied to so many jobs, and I never got them, and now it's just like AI Central over there. Yep, yep. I think about how happy I am that every day no one can lay me off. It's like we can things can go under, and we can stop doing this, but no boss mm -hmm. is going to tell me you can't do this anymore. I want to shout out the, all the people contributing to Patreons out there. I think there was a big switch that happened in 2020 where people like, remember what I said about institutions? Like, oh, small businesses are just two people. <laughs> Podcasts right. are just people. And then yeah. they started voting with their dollars, supporting the things that they loved with their with five and ten dollars a month. And I think this is only being reinforced with the fact that like so many TV shows are disappearing and HBO Max is now Max and the yep. writer's strike and David Zasloff being a total idiot <laughs> and his head shoved so far up his own ass. You understand you got to vote with your dollars and support the things that want to exist and, you know, join the party. We finally we made the decision to bring join the party weekly after a big Patreon drive. And that was really wonderful. And being able to uh, produce four shows and to do this as his creative and run multitude. It's it's nice. It's a good feeling. It's hard, but it's the it's nice. I have bad news. You're laying me off. <laughs> <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> I have a family at home. In a way, in that you have to now, in this moment, sure. finally, 
prove your ultimate worth as a podcast guest. Hell yeah. Here on Reckless to Talk. And it pains me to bring the, you know, to, to have to bring our lovely productive conversation of much fun and, and learning and expression to one of the hardest moments, hardest hitting moments in all of podcasting, the Reckless to Talk lightning round. Oh, good. I thought you were going to make me do ad reads. Good. No. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> That's true. That is a different gauntlet and will not be expressed on this particular show. No, it's fine. The lightning round. For you and for anyone who may be listening for the first time, I ask the same questions in the same order to every single person who has ever been on this show. There are no wrong answers other than uh, lies, but that's not really wrong so much as just lame. <laughs> yeah, I'm going to lie my way through this. Again, it, you can do it, I guess, if that's what makes you happy, but it it's just seems not fun. Sure. One word answers, totally great. Long-winded responses, totally great. Saying, you know, I don't really have a good answer for that. Check. Done. I will listen to whatever it is your response is. I will nod knowingly, uh, not to try to get my uh, chatty ass out of the way as much as possible. And we will just go through whatever the answer is to you is the correct answer. Eric, are you ready for the lightning round? I am 100% ready. This episode is sponsored by HelloFresh. HelloFresh. <laughs> These meal kits are bad and we union bust. HelloFresh. <laughs> Question one. Is your glass half full or half empty? I'm going to say half empty. I don't think this makes me a pessimist. I think it means that I'm, I'm looking to fill up the rest of the glass. What excites you creatively, spiritually, and or emotionally? Do you mean generally or something or, the mo or something right now? That's up to you. Yeah. This is this is your space. I am but a a purveyor of universal questions for you to mull over and connect with as <laughs> you feel appropriate. Well, I think that the, I can give three examples. Everyone go watch Andor if you haven't. It it revitalized. I I cared so I care nothing. I I I nothinged yeah. <laughs> the Star Wars universe and Andor like brought me back and like saw the and how this how people feel about Star Wars. Honestly, Andor absolutely incredible. Something I, the stuff I've been reading lately, it's called Delicious in Dungeon, which is a manga about a, an adventuring party going into a dungeon where they eat all of the monsters down there. <laughs> Again, it's a really interesting uh, genre, not inversion, but an iteration on the fantasy genre of it being kind of like a cookbook almost and seeing how cooking integrates itself into this fantasy story and also the world building of the dungeons. I've bought all of them on Amazon. I have like 11 right now. I think there are 12. I've just been reading all of them lately. They're, it's really, really good. So I think that my, the thing that generally is like genre stories that iterate on the genre. Finally, uh, go read some poetry if you haven't. I spent a lot of time being really immersed in poetry, in the slam poetry I did in, in the early 2010s. And like, I forgot about it a little while ago. And then I saw this tweet from Gita, Gita Jackson about your favorite poems. And I started reading a lot of them. And then I realized like my, some of my favorites, I remembered them for like the first time in 10 years. And I'm like, poetry good. <laughs> I spent so much time being poetry bad, <laughs> like being after being in there in the way that you do. I say all podcasts are bad because <laughs> it's just the way that I'm in, but like poetry, good poetry. good. <laughs> what does not excite you? creatively, spiritually, and or emotionally? The thing that bothers me the most that I've been reckoning with, just in general, and I think it's something that's happening even more so in 2023, when people can't handle criticism of art they like, when it's mm. like, you know, something being like an all-positive zone or a, a no-bummer zone, 
And then also like demonizing the person who is willing to criticize something in the first place. I've realized a lot of people have a problem with like someone who's like, hey, I don't like I have a problem right now. It's like you're a bad person because you have a problem and having a problem makes you bad. So and it's something as someone who loves pointing out when things are problems. It's something I, I felt a lot. And I don't know if just people forgot how to interact with humans after being inside for two years. But that's that's something that really, really gets me down. What is your favorite sound? Oh, this is a good question. A sound I love is being on a lake and hearing a loon somewhere. Mm. I'm going to go with that. What sound do you hate? The sound of someone being uh, pretentious at me. There's just a a, 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 a vocal a register. Yeah. Yeah. A tone of someone being like, mm, you know, no, I'm like, I will shove you in a locker, you absolute nerd. What is your favorite word? Liminal. What is your least favorite word? I don't hate moist necessarily, but like I get it. <laughs> mm-hmm. But then again, moist is bad. Originally, when they created the word moist in like Middle <laughs> English or Old English or whatever it came, it's like they were describing caves. They weren't like, ooh, I love this duck breast and how it's cut. Like they were describing yeah, caves. They were describing bad things. Moist sounds like a cave that you can't sit in, you know? I think that's reasonable. So it's not that I hate it. It's that I think moist is a very effective word. <laughs> For communicating a specific vibe. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. That makes Words sense. Words mean things, Nathan. Words mean things. They mean things. <laughs> What tabletop role-playing game or D&D or what have you, monster or antagonist, blah, 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 Mm -hmm. have you not faced or run that you would love to? Uh, The monster of people not knowing how to play Lancer. (laughs) (laughs) The the rule book of Lancer is the the monster that I have have not been able to confront. (laughs) What is your favorite adventure of all time? And this can be a tabletop adventure. It can be one you read, one you wrote. Uh, It can be 1999's The Mummy, whatever that means to you. Everyone should go back to Ready Player One, the book and the movie, and Put all the bullshit aside. <laughs> also, hilariously, that guy, the guy who wrote Ready Player One, was in the slam poetry scene, and, really? and which is so funny to me. There's some really interesting stuff in there. If you leave, like the thing I said about only your own, that you're only like a true acceptable person if you know this specific diet of right. '80s stuff. If you put all of that to the side, there are some very interesting s- storytelling devices of like these tests that you need to pass to like unlock a world and also like just the whole hunting for an easter egg thing mm-hmm. i just think is so interesting like you have a world and there's a secret in the middle of the world and people spend their entire lives looking for it like the the bones of the story is very interesting it's just oh unfortunately much like a dumpster it's filled with garbage but very, <laughs> but very well put together <laughs> What is your favorite tabletop role-playing game character of all time? And again, it can be one of your characters. It could be an NPC. It could be uh, a player that you played with. It could be a show that you watched of, I really love that character, whatever it means to you. I'm going to go with um, Laser Ted from uh, a campaign of uh, Friends (laughs) of the Table, uh, who is pretty much just like... (laughs) (laughs) who is pretty much just like steampunk futuristic riffraff uh and i I loved him and it was it was was really funny ever go look up laser ted he's good (laughs) he's one of the one of the good teds yeah one of those one of those good laser teds out there there's a lot of them final question eric what gives you hope 
What gives me hope is a uh, collective action of creatives. Listen, I'm not, I'm someone who's still on Twitter. I'm also on blue sky. I it's necessary. I get it. But I think that just like where everyone pours their poison into it, I think is a problem where everyone's trying to step on each other, like a bucket of crabs. That's what really gets me down. But the thing that gives me hope is when that turns into collective action. For example, what's happening with the writer's strike. Uh, there's been a few strikes ne- actually right near the office. So I've been able to walk down there and just participate. And it's been really great. It's been like energizing and enervating. And it's awesome seeing collective action in person and seeing now seeing like the the SAG, uh, SAG voting on authorization for a strike and the DGA also throwing support behind there, especially after the garbage that the HBO Max has been doing lately. I'm, I'm sure that they're going to uh, step up and do something. And also seeing like worker owned collectives exist. Uh, like, for example, uh, D- Defector, who we've been working with, is an incredible model. And also Hellgate here in New York City, another worker-owned collective. And also, like, people supported by Patreons, like uh, MinMax is another really great example of this, which is an independent uh, video game outlet uh, supported by um, Patreon. It's a collective and worker-owned, or at least, like, people coming together and making something. And it's like, oh, wait, we can make money and thrive at the same time. Mm-hmm. Just because you have good values doesn't mean you can't also survive and accrue wealth. You have to do that. Nothing. You know what makes me happy? You know what gives me hope? I love being a job creator at Multitude. <laughs> Creating jobs and giving money to other people to work at Multitude is my single favorite thing. We're, we're hiring like a marketing person right now, and I'm looking over the final round of interviews, and I love it. It's so good. It's so great. Eric, congratulations. You have made it through the the hellscape that is Reckless Attack and the Reckless Attack lightning round. I probably shouldn't, as lead marketer, talk about our interview show as a hellscape, but here we are. It's too late now. I've already said the thing. Uh, <laughs> thank you so much for uh, all of your lovely insight. Uh, but as a as a reward for your continued survival and for your <laughs> for your conquering of the mountain that is this show, could you please remind everyone? who you have been, where they can find you, how they can support you, all the good things. Absolutely. My name is Eric Silver. I am the best DM in podcasting. And you can find me GMing uh, Join the Party actual play podcast with tangible worlds, interesting gameplay, and people who make each other laugh all the time. Uh, you can also check out my other shows if you just want, if you don't want tabletop RPG stuff, you want games, games and feelings, games advice podcasts that I do with Jasper Cartwright. Uh, and also uh, Tell Me About It, which I do with in legendary podcast improver Adderall Fi, where it's a game show run by a billionaire. It's like podcasting taskmaster. A lot. <laughs> A lot, a lot of fun. And also you can find me on Twitter at L underscore Silvero, E-L underscore S-A-L-V-E-R-O. My name, I was a Lucha Libre wrestler. Uh, and you can follow the games that I designed. The majority of them are on the Join the Party merch store, uh, which you can find at jointhepartypod.com slash merch. And also um, Clear Eyes, Full Hearts, which is an sports anime GM-less game that I've created with uh, Misha Stanton is on uh, my itch pitch. I was super disappointed that it's like, ah, we just don't have time to talk about. <laughs> GM-less <laughs> games, GM-less this- games. It's incredible. Good. They're great. Yeah, it's really good. Eric, thank you so much. Uh, there will be links to, to all of those things and more in the show notes. Be sure, dear listeners, to go check that out and go check out Eric and join the party and multitude and all the other lovely things. Eric, thank you for being here. Thank you for, for being you. And I appreciate it. And uh, uh, dear listener, goodbye. You have to wipe cast off my forehead so that I go to pod. And it's like I'm just in a little pod and I stop. Just go back into your podcast hibernation until called upon once more. Yes. yes. To serve serve the needs of the audience. Exactly. Hi, Eric. Hello. (laughs) 